In April this year, Stephanie Kirschgesner, an investigative reporter with The Guardian, found herself invited to a very unusual video call. One of my editors on the foreign desk gets a call and they say, we'd like to talk to you and Stephanie. Make sure your phones are not in the room for the call. We're going to do a video chat. So there was a lot of mystery around it beginning there. And basically, in that initial conversation, what we understood was that they could not tell us very much, but that we should really get to Paris for a meeting because there was a story about surveillance. The group who'd made the call was the Paris-based organization Forbidden Stories. All they would tell Stephanie and her editor was that the story was about an Israeli company, NSO Group. It was particularly interesting for me because I had been writing about this company called NSO Group for a number of years. Not the only journalist doing that, but one of a handful, I would say, who was writing about them on a really regular basis and very alarmed about the stories that were coming out. So it was pretty intriguing to hear someone say, we have something to show you. The problem was Forbidden Stories insisted that to learn more, the journalists had to travel to Paris to meet face-to-face. Stephanie lives in Washington, D.C., and it was in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, I'd literally been working out of my attic for, you know, months and months and months with my school-aged children downstairs learning virtually. So the idea of going even to New York was sort of crazy. So the idea of getting on a plane and going to Paris was insane. So anyway, I was very happy to be let in. I arrived in Paris and joined some of my colleagues there, uh, including the head of investigations. And turns out uh, we we were meeting dozens of other journalists. Um, We'd all been congregated. What those journalists assembled in Paris would uncover was massive. Surveillance abuses by both authoritarian governments and democracies. And it would dramatically affect how the journalists themselves looked at the tools of their trade, their phones. This is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. I'm Nick Bryan, and on Journo, we unpack how news is made, how it's framed, and the complex issues facing the media at a time of rapid change. I'm Laurent Richard, I'm the founder and the executive director of Forbidden Stories. We begin in 2020, when Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International found themselves in possession of a leak of 50,000 phone numbers. Laurent Richard and his team then brought together some of the biggest hitters in the industry, The Guardian, The Washington Post, Le Monde. The Pegasus Project was born. And what we did with Forbidden Stories is to share that link. Given the COVID issue as well and the travel ban, we asked them to come uh, in Paris because it was impossible to talk over the phone about this project. And so we we called our our colleagues at the Washington Post, we called the friends at The Guardian, uh, and, um, and we all met in Paris for three days. Once the group was shown the data, it was obvious they were looking at something that threatened to change the way we work as journalists. The leak was tens of thousands of phone numbers 
of people who it was suspected had been kind of selected as, as people of interest by NSO's clients. And that meant that they were people who were selected as interest for surveillance and for having their phones hacked. Um, it doesn't mean it was a list of people who were definitely hacked, but what we've seen from that first encounter in Paris until now is that um, of the numbers that have been checked, um, a pretty high proportion of them, we see evidence that NSO spyware has been used against those people, or or at least attempted. And we should explain what this Pegasus software actually does. Yeah, it's really invasive. What it does is it essentially allows somebody, and this somebody would be a foreign government, right, because those are the clients of NSO Group, to gain access to your phone completely. So once you're inside a phone, there is no such thing as an encrypted app. There's no such thing as like keeping something private. It is all accessible. That means whoever's on the other side of Pegasus can listen to your phone conversations, look at all your pictures, track where you are, look at all the websites that you've been looking at. But it can also turn your recorder on and off. So it can be listening to phone conversations. You can just have the phone obviously next to you in a meeting. And we know people that this happened to. So basically, it's like one person over your shoulder. That Pegasus software is sold by NSO to state actors, and it's considered like a weapon. Basically, you need a license from the Ministry of Defense in Israel to be able to explore that. And Stephanie, of those thousands of names, give me a sense of who was on that list. I mean, there are just so many people and so many different kinds of people. So you have human rights activists journalists, journalists who are working on the project. And then there are some very big names of politicians, including Emmanuel Macron, including the current leader in Mexico, who at the time that he was selected for targeting was a rival candidate to the previous government. So we basically had lists of names. And we had to find out how we were going to go about reporting this, because you can't just publish a list of names. You know, you needed to tell some stories around those names. And you needed to inform the people that they had been selected as candidates for surveillance. And you needed to see if you could get access to their phones to let us test their phones. And to avoid any confusion here, we're not talking about the NSA, the American spy agency. We're talking about NSO. That's a private contractor. The NSO Group was recently valued, as I said, at $1 billion. It is one of the most successful companies in Israel's startup space. According to the Israeli company NSO Group, the spyware is intended to help governments fight terrorism and crime. Just tell us a little bit about this company. NSO is a leader. NSO is the number one in the world in terms of uh, companies selling spyware. And most of the people working for NSO were previously working inside the Cyber Intelligence Unit AT200 uh, that is part of the Israeli Defense Forces. Well, it's funny you should mention the NSA since that was the really big surveillance scandal many years ago. And I do sort of see this as like the sequel to that story. And Pegasus is this very powerful tool. The more you think about Pegasus... If you're a person who could be vulnerable to this, it just makes you not want to have your phone anywhere near you. 
And that's exactly how it played out for the journalists working on this super secretive project. They had to learn to work without their phones. Well, it's so cloak and dagger that I'm still not allowed to tell you the full details, I'm afraid. But I will try to tell you as much as I can. All of our mobile phones were left in a different room in this big suitcase. Because, of course, one way that Pegasus works is it can turn your phone into a recording device. So we were very careful with our phones. We were never allowed to speak about the project. Even once we left Paris, we were never allowed to speak about the project around our phones. And we found an alternative method. And that's the kind of thing I'm still not allowed to talk about. So in the midst of a global pandemic, when really you're not supposed to meet people face-to-face, you're in a situation where you couldn't use your phones either. I mean, that must have been logistically really, really difficult. It was sometimes impossible. I mean, obviously, we were going to give NSO Group plenty of time to comment and its clients plenty of time to comment, and we did. But that doesn't mean that, like in any investigation, that we're going to tip um, everyone off to the work that we're doing until we're ready to do so. So that was really, really challenging. A lot of my reporting colleagues would try to meet people in person. There were sometimes video calls that I did. Once you make contact and you've contacted someone you've never met before, you've convinced them to get on a video call with you and to put their phone away. And then you've got to tell them that they might have been targeted for surveillance. And can they hand over their phone, please? <laughs> NSO would argue this is useful technology. It's useful for law enforcement agencies. It's useful for governments trying to prevent terror attacks. What would you say to that? That's a really good and interesting question. Uh, and one I grapple with, frankly. What NSO Group says is, We sell this spyware to law enforcement agencies, police all around the world because criminals have gone dark and terrorists have gone dark and they're all using encrypted apps like WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram and law enforcement cannot track those conversations. The idea is, you know, how how do you prevent another 9-11? You can prevent another 9-11, this is what NSO Group says, if you give these kinds of tools to law enforcement agencies around the world, and then they will be able to find out what those people are talking about and plotting in their encrypted apps. The narrative of NSO and the narrative and the storytelling of all those governments is to say that it's to catch the bad guys, to catch El Chapo, to catch terrorists, pedophiles, and and so on. The thing, what we are discovering when we did access to the leak, that we saw people were not pedophiles, but they were lawyers. They they were not terrorists, but they were journalists. Or they were not uh, criminals, but they were political opponents. What's important is to just look at the reality that we see and not the kind of fantasy narrative that we get from NSO Group. So far, the Pegasus Project has found the phone numbers of almost 200 journalists in that leaked data, each one a potential surveillance target. They've included reporters from the Wall Street Journal, CNN, the New York Times, and even the editor of the Financial Times. But there's a darker story too. Amnesty International says Pegasus has played a role in the persecution and jailing of journalists in places like India, Morocco and Azerbaijan. 
images played out relentlessly worldwide as Saudi Arabia denied Jamal Khashoggi had been killed. But this was the last anyone would see of him alive. It's also been linked to the brutal murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. Traces of the spyware were found on the phones of his close contacts. So what's it like to be a reporter and to discover you've been hacked? She sat us down and said that she wanted to convey a message from Forbidden Stories that they had good reasons to believe our phones were compromised with Pegasus spyware. Siddharth Varadarajan is the founder of the Indian news and investigative site, The Wire. His number was on the list. I got a, a kind of curious phone call from a, from a young reporter who had worked with us in the past. And uh, she's based in Madras. And she called me and said, you know, do you have an iPhone? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, uh, it's really important that I come and see you soon. Can I fly down from Madras uh, to Delhi in the next couple of days? So I thought this is rather odd. Uh, and I had a sneaking suspicion that whatever it was she wanted to convey to me wasn't going to be good news. So she, she rolled in literally 48 hours later. She walked in and said in a rather dramatic fashion if we could switch off our phones and put them in another room. If we were willing to have our phones forensically examined, she'd be happy to connect us right away through a secure line with the Forbidden Stories editors in Paris so we could discuss this. To prove that Pegasus has infected a phone, the device has to be forensically examined. In this case, by a team of tech experts at Amnesty International's security lab. And of course, when we got the results of the forensic test a few hours later, that's when we had positive confirmation that indeed our phones had been compromised with this pretty nasty spyware that we had only read about, but never imagined that we would be directly affected by it. Now, the phone is, is like an extension these days of a journalist's body. I mean, it must have felt like you were being not only professionally violated, but almost personally violated. I mean, what was your reaction? The first thought that went through my mind was, crikey, what were the stories that I was working on at that time? Who were the people I was in touch with? And what was the extent of you know, information that whoever was doing this had managed to gain access to? You said that for us as journalists, Phones are an extension of our bodies. When that's, you know, that's true of pretty much everybody these days, right? And uh, what we found is that the sense of intrusion and violation is, you know, it's profound, of course, for a journalist, because it's not just our own privacy or security that bothers us, but we have a duty towards sources. We have a duty towards people that we meet, that whatever they have said to us in confidence will remain so. So there is an additional burden that, we carry around, you know, you go back and try to scan your calendar and your engagement book to see, you know, what on earth was I doing? Why was I during this period of time marked out as a person of interest? No journalist, certainly not a journalist living in a, in a democratic country uh, ought to have to experience, uh, I mean, nobody anywhere should, but I'm saying it's the last thing that you expect if you're living in a, in a country that has constitutionally guaranteed freedom of the press. What sort of stories were you working on at the time? Was there anything politically sensitive? You know, we've been through this uh, exercise carefully, and 
you know, I've not been able to narrow things down to any one particular story. This was a time when we at The Wire were doing a lot of investigative work into the business affairs of members of the ruling party in the government. We were also working on stories on the business affairs, questionable dealings and conflicts of interest involving ministers. So it could be linked to that. On the other hand, it could be linked also to the general work that The Wire was doing. In other words, they perhaps had an interest in the full range of activities we were doing and the kind of stories and the kind of contacts. Maybe maybe they had a curiosity about you know whether anybody in government was leaking stuff to us. And Siddharth, I mean, the big question, obviously, is who do you think was spying on you? There's no doubt in my mind that it was the government of India, uh, the Modi government that targeted me and others with Pegasus. We're talking, of course, about the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, somebody over the years who has had a very fractious relationship with the press. Narendra Modi came to power in 2014 and has run arguably the most media-unfriendly government, and that's putting it, putting it very mildly and, and diplomatically, that we've seen in, in decades. What we've seen over the last seven years is increasing reliance on defamation cases, both civil and criminal, and particularly over the last year and a half to two years, the filing of criminal charges against journalists, editors, and media publications for doing stories that the government doesn't like, either at the central level or at the state level. Uh, the Wire itself and I myself personally have uh, been targeted with some of these criminal cases just for reporting. Essentially, it leaves no doubt to my mind that we are dealing with uh, a government and a ruling party that will leave no stone unturned in trying to control what the media reports because they see critical media coverage as a threat to them. When you throw Pegasus spyware into the mix, you can see how deadly uh, this, this offensive actually is, because you're constraining and tr you're trying to cripple the work of the media right from the stage of when we begin reporting, because if you're going to compromise our ability to, to meet sources by spying on us, then you are trying to nip journalism in the bud. I mean, I don't want you to give away what has become your modus operandi since you realised that you had been compromised. But, I mean, what does that look like day to day? I mean, is it walks in the park to have editorial meetings? Is it, you know, not meeting up with contacts or not ringing up contacts anymore? The knowledge that Pegasus is being used has, in a way, made us more disciplined about how we communicate. I can't say too much, but I can say that uh, the best guarantor of keeping a conversation confidential would be to meet somebody in person and to not have your phones there or to switch your phones off. Ideally, not carry your phone at all. What you cannot allow is paranoia or fear because I think that's also perhaps something that the users of Pegasus intend, which is to, to so cripple you with the sense that you have no privacy, that you stop working or you stop doing stories. Right? So we can't allow that to happen either. Well, these days, if you're targeted by Pegasus, you see nothing, you smell nothing, you taste nothing. You're minding your own business, doing whatever it is that you do with your phone, or perhaps your phone is sitting on your night table at two in the morning. And then it's infected. What has happened silently and far away from you 
is that people in an office have plugged your phone number or some other identifier for you into a database. And then a silent infection has been shot across the wires to your phone, opening up a back door in the phone that even the phone's manufacturer, Apple or Google or whoever, doesn't know about. And then a stealthy piece of malware is put on that phone, which immediately begins pulling information back from the phone and sending it to those people, effectively taking your personal world and dumping it out on the digital table in front of somebody who may not wish you well. That's John Scott Relton, a security researcher with the group Citizen Lab. They've been looking at Pegasus since it was first found on the phone of a human rights activist five years ago. There's nothing that you can do to prevent that phone from being infected with Pegasus right now. And the problem is that so many countries around the world don't have any meaningful oversight right now for the use of this kind of technology. Scott Relton is considered a surveillance guru. And in his view, Pegasus is an alarming shift in spyware technology with really serious ramifications. And moreover, even if you're really well-resourced, like the French President Macron, it may be very hard for you to even determine that your phone was infected with Pegasus or that something has happened in the past. This is really concerning, and it means that we can't really stop this industry without serious action from a lot of different places, including governments. The harm that it causes is just going to keep compounding, and there doesn't seem to be any natural end state beyond every police force in the world having access to this technology. John, give us a sense of the the customer list. Uh, Which governments are buying this technology? Which police forces and security agencies are getting their hands on this technology? Well, we see a global customer list ranging from countries that appear to be rather small and be mostly concerned with internal dissent, like Togo, all the way to countries like Mexico, which are prolific users of Pegasus uh, and which target widely and have been widely associated with abuses, targeting journalists, human rights defenders, lawyers, investigators into mass uh, killings, um, and even soda tax advocates. We also see Hungary um, and the targeting of uh, media there. We see cases of the Rwandan diaspora being targeted in a sort of a terrifying adjacency to what appears to be a targeted killing program. We see Saudi Arabia widely targeting not only dissidents, but also the people who were immediately around Jamal Khashoggi, um, like his wife and fiance, people who earned the ire of autocrats around the world now do have to fear Pegasus as NSO Group continues to expand uh, the scale of its selling to more and more countries. Equally troubling is the fact that NSO's long-term model appears to be selling their tech to democracies and to local police forces. And we just know that this is a technology that has just incredible abuse potential. And most local and state police forces around the world, even in democracies, don't have the best oversight in the best of times. They certainly don't have it around the use of this kind of super secret surveillance power. And I think we have to be extremely concerned as people living in democracies that this stuff will eventually come to a phone near us. Today, the visible targets may be activists and human rights defenders somewhere else in the world, but in the long run, it might be a tax dispute. If there's anything we've learned from the past decade, it's when you drop a new technology in without any regulation or breaks, really bad things happen. But that's the catch-22, John, right? I mean, governments are needed to actually legislate against this kind of technology, but 
governments are tempted to use this kind of technology. And like with so many things, governments like it until, in some cases, the consequences are too unbearable. It's not an accident that when many governments create laws that authorize surveillance powers, they often exempt, say, the parliament. Um, one of the things that I would observe here is that this looks a lot like the arms trade in decades past. Back during the Cold War, for example, it was useful for both Russia and the United States to have shady arms dealers who could move between countries and borders and move weapons for the proxy conflicts that they had. These arms dealers fueled and made conflicts around the world more bloody than they otherwise would have been. And it took governments around the world in the end of the Cold War recognizing and seeing the scale of the harm that this industry caused to start putting in place international agreements to slow it down. That doesn't yet exist for cyber weapons. And yet, as we see, it's not just activists and human rights defenders that get targeted, it's heads of state. And it may, sort of like climate change, require a crisis that directly touches the analogous equivalent of the seaside house of the prime minister for there to be some kind of action. I wonder what can big tech contribute here? What can they do to make their devices, to make their apps less vulnerable to this kind of spyware? Well, big tech is in a big problem with respect to NSO and the commercial surveillance industry generally. They make devices for most people most of the time. They don't make devices that are designed to be ultimately secure. They're not making devices for secure communication between the five eyes countries. They're not making devices for secure communication of you know, oligarchs to their bankers. And yet they've been so successful that that's what everyone uses. And NSO and companies like it create a problem, which is they have hundreds of employees working on developing new ways to hack these devices or buying them, buying these exploits, buying these backdoors. And the companies are always playing catch up. As a result, after years of trying to solve this from a technological perspective, from adding one more, one more, one more security feature, patching one more thing, companies got angry and they have resorted to the legal system. So in the United States right now, WhatsApp and Facebook have sued NSO Group and they've been joined in their lawsuit by a host of other companies uh, like Microsoft, and Google. And that lawsuit, I think, indicates that companies' patience has worn out, but also that companies recognize that they can't solve this problem alone, and they can't just solve it from a technological perspective. There will always be a new vulnerability in their devices, and they need to rely both on the legal system, but also governments to try to help them out. And this is normal. For a problem that touches so many different things, it can't be solved in a single way. And let's not kid ourselves, big tech has shown itself to be uniquely unable to solve society's problems, let alone its own problems. This is another case of that. John, I think this conversation has, has cured my phone addiction. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it's an interesting thing. Big tech really would like you to continue using their phone as much as you probably already compulsively do. And so there is a reckoning there. They do have to take companies like NSO and Pegasus seriously, in part because these companies, if they have their way, 
will be the future. Every police force that they can sell to will be equipped with this technology. And suddenly you'll be wondering whether an interview you do someday about some council issue might result in the local council police just taking a peek at your messages with your spouse uh, just to see if there's you know, perhaps something untoward going on with your reporting. But our advice to everybody is, look, don't stop what you're doing. As long as you're careful uh, when you need to be careful, there's no reason why a journalist needs to change the way that she does her work. That's the sensible approach, is to, is to be cautious when you need to be, but to not allow the fear of surveillance to stop you in your tracks. We cannot allow the fear of surveillance to intimidate us because then without deploying Pegasus, the bad guys win, right? Surveillance on journalists is something that I've tended to think of as a physical activity, arriving in an authoritarian country and being watched and tailed by the authorities. When it comes to electronic eavesdropping, I guess I've lapsed into a false sense of security by using encrypted technology like WhatsApp, something I've done in countries such as Venezuela. So this is such an alarming development, not just for editors, correspondents and producers, but crucially for our contacts as well. NSO Group says it only sells Pegasus to verified states and state agencies, and that it focuses on human rights in its due diligence process. But Pegasus is being used by more democracies. Germany recently admitted that it bought the spyware for specific police purposes in 2019. In Australia, the government hasn't given any official indication that they have or will buy Pegasus. They tell us there are legal frameworks and robust oversight mechanisms in place for the surveillance tools they do use. Pegasus, of course, is the name that describes a mythical creature. But the development of spyware like this has the potential to be a frightening Trojan horse. I think Australians should be very concerned about surveillance powers and I think Australians should be extremely concerned about the security and privacy of their mobile devices. Every state has what it does and that it has what it says it does. My sense of Australia is that the government is moving towards the explicit authorization of more powers for surveillance. And Australians have to ask themselves this question, do they trust their government to wield these powers in ways that are accountable and that have proper oversight. And so I would also encourage your listeners to look up and listen very carefully to the voices of those in Australia who have raised questions about surveillance powers and surveillance authorities. Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithhurst, Nicole Kirby and Britta Jorgensen with sound design by Bryce Halliday. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. The commissioning editor for JNI is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryant, and coming up on Journo. For some reporters, it's a stepping stone, and for others, it's a calling. But who's holding power to account in Australia's suburbs and regional towns? And what will it take 
for local journalism to survive. And people started saying, could I ask you about this? What do you know about this? And then I realised that people were really thirsty for local news and they started raising issues with me and I went, oh, okay, I'll look into that. And then I started attending the Lane Cove Council meetings and realising, oh my gosh, this is democracy in action. We've got real trouble. <laughs>